The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So there's a story behind that video that you just saw of a couple of our guys um, building the letters, and they're, they're building these uh, letters that spell reclaimed here up on the stage, and there's a, a backstory. All of um, the wood for uh, these letters are, are a piece of wood like this, and they're actually from a fence, a fence that got destroyed in Hurricane Irma. And so they took the, that fence, they pried off all of the different pieces, they, they sanded them down, they cut them, they reattached them and to, to, to shape and make this word reclaimed. And I, I love, personally, I love projects like that. And you can find all different kinds of television networks that tell you how to do projects like that and dozens and dozens of websites that tell you how to make furniture out of reclaimed pieces of wood. Or they'll take something that was once used for this purpose and then now it can be reused and useful again. And I I love seeing things like that and projects like that for multiple reasons. I love it watching someone's um, skill as a craftsman or a carpenter be able to see what they can come up with. I love seeing their skill. But more than that, I love seeing their creativity when they look at something old and they say, or something used, something outdated, and they're like, hey, what could that be? Like there's a creativity inside of them that can conceive of something fresh to come out of that. But there's a third part that I am so drawn to, to I, I, in those kinds of scenarios, is I love that it's something that's old that's becoming new, used that's becoming useful, discarded and it's becoming a treasure, outdated and it's becoming on trend. And there's something that that just strikes a chord inside that draws me to that. And I think that idea is something that draws us in. Like It's not just in carpentry and in design, but we love stories where there's someone who's down and out, looks like you know, their whole story is over, but something happens in their life, and they find out that there's more left in the tank. There, there's, their story wasn't over. There's actually a whole new chapter in their story, and it becomes a happy ending. We love those kind of stories, something that it seems like it's all over, but it's just the beginning of the whole story. What that is, all of that, whether it's a a piece of reclaimed wood or it's someone's story, that is a depiction of the idea of redemption. Redemption is something that's used up but but you find out has new life. Outdated that now is actually can be a treasure and, and can be uh, a, a draw to people. It's when something like that you find out its story is just beginning. We're digging into a story in the Bible. It's a short story, very, very powerful, involves multiple characters. And it's a story that God has preserved because it depicts the idea of redemption. And he wanted this full-color, high-definition story, very vivid, to depict redemption because we learn about something that we all need in our lives. We all need that that redemptive moment in our lives. And so the story pictures it 
so that we can learn about what's happening in our lives and actually learn what our role is in that whole redemptive process. So we're going to dig into this story from the book of Ruth. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app with you, open up to the book of Ruth. It's also going to be up here on the screens. We're going to go through today and really kind of lay the groundwork for this incredible story. And we're going to move through Ruth chapter 1. I want to give you the kind of the, the workings, the backstory of what's happening. Ruth chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. Ruth 1.1. 1, 1. Here we go. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons, Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So let's get the background of this story, Ruth. The, the background as it starts, it says it's in the time of the judges. So let's just kind of orient ourselves to when in history and when in the story of the Bible this is taking place. There is a book called Judges. You can go read about that entire time period of the Judges. That section of, the, of history is um, after Abraham and after all that. It's right after Moses and Joshua. You remember Moses. He stands before Pharaoh. Let my people go. There's all these plagues. They leave Egypt. They're wandering around in the wilderness trying to get to the promised land. They stop at Mount Sinai. If you remember, they get the two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. He gets that there on Mount Sinai. Joshua leads them into the promised land, and they settle there. That begins the period of Judges up until the point when Israel starts having kings. Saul, David, Solomon, these are some of the kings of Israel. That time of the judges, if you've ever heard of a guy by the name of Samson and Delilah, if you've ever heard of a guy named Samson, that's at the time of the judges. A guy named Gideon, a woman named Deborah, these are some of the leaders during that time period of the judges. That's when this is happening. And actually some scholars believe that it, within the time of the judges, it might have happened around the time period of Samson. This is about the time period that this is all taking place. Now, as you're reading through, it says it was in the time of Judges. That's, when, that's what's going on. And it says there was a famine in the land. Now, let's just say you had started at the very first page of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, and you had read all the way to Ruth 1-1. When you see that there was a famine, it would cue you to think something. Because up until this point, when Moses was standing on Mount Sinai and then right before they go into the promised land, Moses speaks to the people from God and God is very, very clear. He says, okay, Israel, we have this relationship. It's a covenant. So there's this almost contractual type relationship. He says, this is a covenant. I've given you these laws. You are, I'm your God. You are my people. You're to demonstrate to all the world around you 
what it looks like to be in a relationship, in a covenant relationship with the almighty God, the creator. And so what he says is he says, okay, here's what, how this is going to work. If you obey my commandments, things are going to go well. I'm going to pour out blessing on you. But if you don't obey my commandments, if you don't obey like, you know, the Ten Commandments, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, have no other gods before me, don't have any idols. If you don't obey those things, it's not going to go well. You're going to have pulled yourself outside of my protection. And here's some of the things it says very clearly is going to happen. You're going to have neighboring people come up and, and fight you and maybe even conquer you. There's going to be times of famine, he says specifically. And so you're reading, it's very clear. If you're being obedient, I'm going to bless you. He says, if you walk out outside of my, my commands, I'm going to punish you. And so when we're reading along, it's in the time of the judges, and we see there's a famine in Israel accuse us to know something about what's been taking place. They've walked away from God, and this is a punishment. Now, Elimelech and his family, his wife Ruth, his two sons, they decide to leave Israel and go to another country. On the surface, without knowing all that spiritual background, that seems like a, a wise move, right? I mean, it's like, okay, the economy's bad here. Go to a neighboring country where the economy is good. Okay, they're going to Moab. Is that like leaving the United States and going to Canada? I mean, what's that like? There's another spiritual thing happening. Moab is not just any old neighboring country. It's their enemy, Moab has attacked Israel, especially in the period of the judges. They're leaving God's people. They're leaving Israel. They're going to this other country. And it's Elimelech It's made this decision and leading his family into that. Now, Elimelech, you've got to get comfortable with this guy's name. That's a fun name to say. Let's say Elimelech together, okay? Ready, Elimelech? Elimelech. See, there, you sounded great, okay? Now you can impress your friends and your community group this upcoming week. Okay, Elimelech leads his family over to Moab, to the enemy. Now, the irony is, this is, it's kind of ironic, they're leaving Bethlehem. Now, you've heard of the little town of Bethlehem, right? You've heard of that? In about 1,200 years from, from um, the time of Naomi and Elimelech, that's going to be significant again. There's going to be a special someone born in Bethlehem, okay? They're leaving Bethlehem, and the irony is, Bethlehem, the name means house of bread. They're leaving Bethlehem to go to their, to their enemy, Moab. What's happening spiritually? They've disobeyed, and Elimelech, instead of being part of the repentance of his people, saying, God, obviously, if there's a famine, we've disobeyed. They come before, they confess their sins, come before God, they repent, turn away from their sins, and come back to God. Instead of doing that, He's trying to avoid God and go to Moab. Do you see that spiritually? Sidestepping what God's doing among his people, trying to escape it and go to Moab. That's a bad move spiritually. What ends up happening is the worst case scenario for his family. He, Elimelech, ends up dying. Her two sons have uh, married two women from Moab, and the sons die. And you find out, even though they've been there for 10 years, both of the sons were unable to have children. So Naomi finds herself 
with these two uh, Moabite daughters-in-law and nothing else. Now, I want to dig into Naomi's story because uh, Ruth chapter 1 is really about Naomi, this one main character. Imagine her story. She finds herself in the worst-case scenario in this agrarian society and time period. A woman who's lost her husband is in, in dire straits. She is in very, very vulnerable. Her hope is then that her sons will take care of her. Then her sons die, and she doesn't have any grandchildren at this point, and that's all part of survival is having people who can work the fields or work the land or whatever it is. So she finds herself, it would be the modern equivalent, not just of dealing with the grief of having lost her husband and then having lost her two children. I mean, that's unbelievable grief that she's going to have to walk through. It's not just that. Now she finds herself, it would be the equivalent of losing your, your spouse, all of your children, losing your house, and your life savings. She's got nothing. She's lost her family, the pain of that grief. She's completely vulnerable and insecure. She's got nothing. She's going to be a beggar. You, you almost cannot imagine a scenario that brings her into a worse shape. And this is the result of Elimelech, her husband's decision to leave the house of bread, Bethlehem, and to go into Moab, this enemy country. And now she finds herself in this incredibly, incredibly dire situation. Let's see what happens. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Watch how this plays out. We're going to just stop here briefly. Naomi hears in the fields of Moab that God has had mercy on his people and has visited them and they have food again. Naomi has nothing, nothing left. She has no other option. She says, okay, I'm going to return back to my home. 
And the two daughters are saying, we're going to come with you. We're going to join God's people there. And, and she says, no, absolutely not. Stay here. Well, I have nothing for you. And they weep. And eventually Orpah goes back home. Ruth is clinging to her. And the dialogue she has with Ruth reveals Naomi's perspective on the situation. Did you see that? She says, please don't come with me. And she uses this word. She uses the Hebrew word mar, which is the word bitter. She says, it is extremely bitter. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. Did you see that? She's mad at God. This is where Naomi's at. It's important to understand how the story plays out. She's mad at God. Now let's go back and revisit the dynamic here. Okay, God's told them very clearly, if you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. They've disobeyed, and her husband, Elimelech, decides instead of turning back to God, they step out of God's protection. They go to this this enemy city, enemy country, and it's even worse for them. That was their decision. It's almost like we have a rule in our family with our kids. We have two little kids, four and two, that whenever we walk into a parking lot or into the street, you have to hold mama or dada's hand. You have to hold our hands. And sometimes they don't want to hold our hands. And so even though I take their hand, they're trying to like slither their little hand out of my hand. And I'm grabbing their hand tighter to hold on to it, which then starts to hurt their little fingers. And they're saying, you're hurting me. And I'm saying, you're hurting you. <laughs> and they're trying to get their hand out of my hand, okay? And, and I know it's uncomfortable for them to hold my hand. That's, that's, they feel restrained and confined. They want the freedom to run amok in the traffic, okay? But I know that even though they feel confined, it's for their protection. And even though maybe as they're trying to pull their hands out, it's even getting painful, it's for their protection. Now, my, my oldest, my daughter, who's four, she's, she's gotten it now. And she decided to one day when my son was trying to pull his hand out of my hand, she decided to explain it to her two-year-old brother. And so she put it in very clear terms. She said, Nehemiah, do you want to run out into the street, get hit by a car and die? Or no? My son's eyes are wide. No, I don't. Well, you better hold on to dad's hand then. And I'm thinking, it's a little intense, but I like it. We'll go with it, okay? So the basic simple truth is, yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it even hurts. But I'm trying to protect my kids because I love them from something exceedingly more painful And it's to their detriment to try and avoid what they're perceiving as discomfort, pain, or restriction. It's to their detriment to pull their hand out. That's what Elimelech decided for his family and his family reaped the consequences. It's a pretty strong warning. But Naomi's perspective is she's mad at God. She says, it's bitter, mar to me. God has done this to me. Let's keep going. Verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, 
Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Okay, this shows you where they are at, both of them spiritually. I want you to see where Naomi's at, first of all. The way that God set up Israel, we talked about this briefly, is that they're to demonstrate to the rest of the world what it looks like to be in relationship with God so that the rest of the surrounding nations in the world are like, tell us about your God. They want to come live among the people of Israel and they, and they meet God through that way. Notice you learn Naomi's heart. What does she say to Ruth? She says, Ruth, look at your sister-in-law, Orpah. She went back to her parents and her gods. You do the same. It's not very evangelistic, is it? She's missing a massive opportunity. Ruth is begging her to go back to be among her people. Naomi overlooks this opportunity. Why? She's bitter towards God. Who are the gods she wants to send um, Ruth and Orpah back to? The main god of Moab is a god named Chemosh. And one of the ways the Moabites worshipped Chemosh is to take their children and sacrifice them to their God. Imagine how dark that religion must be. That's what Ruth and Orpah are coming out of spiritually. That's what Elimelech wanted to take his family into. And as we think about that, it actually might be an act of grace that God didn't give Naomi any grandchildren. Naomi is so embittered towards God, she basically says to Ruth and Orpah, Go back to Chemosh. Ruth clings to her. Now watch, that's what's going on spiritually with Naomi. Now watch what's going on with Ruth. Her allegiance at this point is completely to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She says, I'm with you. Where you go, I will go. Your people, my people. And then she says, your God, my God. That's the most, she uses the most generic word for God you can use in the Hebrew language. It's just like our word God. It can mean any God of all different types of names when you use the English word God. She says, your God, I will, I'll follow that God. You see that there's really no particular allegiance to Naomi's God necessarily. Her commitment is to Naomi. But watch what happens. Then she says, she, she promises and makes a covenant to Naomi and she swears in the name of the Lord. She says, and may the Lord do more to me if I don't fulfill what I've promised you. The word Lord is the personal name for the God of Israel, who we know is the one true living God. It's the personal name for the God of Israel, the name Yahweh. And so it's almost like in that moment she's saying, whoever your people are, wherever you're at, your God will be my God. And then it's like, That's her moment where she's coming under the allegiance of that God because now she's making a promise by Yahweh. Do you see that? That's what's going on spiritually in these ladies' lives. Ruth 
coming out of the worship of Chemosh, child sacrifice, a religion that dark. Naomi, so embittered to Yahweh, she's telling her daughters-in-law to go back to Chemosh. That's how mad she is at God. Let's wrap up this chapter. Look what it says, 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. They walk into Bethlehem. They walk into the house of bread. And it's a small town, so there's some buzz. Ladies are talking over coffee. Did you see Naomi's back? And they, she's been gone minimum 10 years, maybe more. She's been gone for over 10 years, and Naomi's back with nothing. She doesn't have her husband. She doesn't have her, her sons. She just has this Moabite girl. It's like, is that, they're probably thinking, is that a Moabite that she brings back with her? And Naomi says this. She says, no longer call me Naomi. Now, that, what's ironic, another part of this chapter that's ironic is the word Naomi. The name Naomi means pleasant. She says, no longer call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Why the, the Hebrew word mar means bitter. She says, no longer call me pleasant. Call me bitterness because the Lord has dealt Bitterly against me, the Almighty has come upon me. The, the Lord has brought this calamity against me. So call me bitterness from now on. Don't you dare call me pleasant. Now I want you to see this piece here because this is it's very powerful. I want you to see how the narrator handles this. The narrator says, So Naomi emphatically says, Don't you dare call me Naomi. Call me Mara. So Naomi went back to Bethlehem with Ruth. Do you see that? The narrator completely disregards Naomi's request. In fact, you will never see the name Mara mentioned for the rest of this book. He completely disregards it and continues to call her pleasant. Why? Naomi thinks her story's over. But this is just the beginning of the book. I mean, we just breeze through, what, 10, 15 years in just a few minutes? I mean, 10, 15 years of unimaginable grief, pain, loss. A woman who's as angry as at God as you can maybe be, like preferring her daughter-in-law, daughters-in-law to go serve a God that demands child sacrifice. I mean, maybe as angry a God as you can be. But the narrator gives us a hint of hope. So Naomi returned where? She returned to the house of bread, the place of provision, the place she should never have left to begin with, right at the beginning of barley harvest. Her story has just 
begun. It's the story of redemption for this woman, Naomi, who's been as mad at God as you can possibly be. And what does God do? Does God just simply say, okay, I mean, you chose that path, Naomi. You have no right to be mad at me. No, we're going to learn something about the extravagant, unbelievable love of God towards her. You know, I want you to think about um, reclaiming a piece of wood like, like this fence post. I mean, think of all that goes into reclaiming a piece of wood like this to turn it into something, some kind of masterpiece. I mean, for a fence, I mean, a crowbar or a hammer yanks it off, breaking rusty nails, maybe pulling the nails through, the nails that, that don't get pulled off, that have to get hammered out or, or pulled out of the wood. Then uh, someone gets a hold of it and they have to sand it down with rough sandpaper smoothing it out or maybe even a belt sander to go or a planer taking off the, the grime and the dirt and the mold and mildew and even layers of paint to get back down to the wood underneath. And then if this is a, a piece of a, a, going to be a furniture or decoration, then it's got to be cut. So this has got to undergo a, a chop saw of some kind or some other saw. It's got to be cut. And then it's got to be fastened on. So now a nail gun or, or nails get hammered in or get screwed in or, or glue adheres it to that. I mean, there's a big process in, in the whole process of reclaiming a piece of wood, taking something discarded and turning it into something that's a treasure. That, that's, that's a long process. But what we learn from this book is we learn something about God. If there's such a thing as God, then we know that he's the creator, right? He made everything. And we know if we read in Genesis that he creates from nothing. He needs nothing. He starts in a void and then he speaks things into existence. He's a creator. He starts fresh. He just pulls things that, out of nowhere and makes things brand new from nothing. But there's another side of God and how he employs his creativity. He doesn't just create from nothing. He recreates things that are broken. He reclaims, remodels, repurposes. He redeems. If God was a designer, it's not just he shows you something you've never seen before, like some kind of ultra-modern, clean lines. If he was a designer, he doesn't just able to do the modern stuff. He can also do like the industrial reclaiming stuff. He's an expert at both if he was a designer. In fact, the only reason we have designs like that, the only reason we appreciate creativity like that is because we reflect who God is. We reflect his sides of his personality and his creative ability to make something brand new and also recreate something that was old and give it new life. That's something that God does. And so that helps us understand and have perspective when we go through a situation like Naomi and we're saying, this is exceedingly bitter right now that you're taking me through. And there's something that we learn about this story to help us understand the categories because the, the Old Testament talks about punishment. What is punishment? Punishment's restoring justice. There's a, a, a crime that has been committed, and so in view of that crime, a sentence has to be served. A punishment has to be dealt. And so um, punishment is determined in a court of law. You want blind justice. It has nothing to do with the person's relationship with that person. It's just the, the punishment has to fit the crime. So punishment is all in view of the person's past. It has nothing to do in that moment, in that courtroom. It has nothing to do with the person's 
future. It has to do with the crime you did. Here's the punishment. But there's another category, too, that's actually the polar opposite of that. It's discipline. Discipline's different than punishment because discipline is not in view of, of someone's past. It's in view of someone's future. It's preparing them for a future. And it's actually, instead of being blind, like blind justice, it's actually out of relationship. So, for example, it's a coach that makes his team run laps or win sprints, conditioning them. Why? He's got a view. He loves them, wants them to succeed, has a view for their future. He's thinking about the end of the second half. When the other team's exhausted, he has a vision for his team that they can, they can still have endurance to finish the game with excellence. And the end of the second half, end of the game, end of the fourth quarter, end of the third period, final ending, he wants them to have the endurance so he has a view of their future. It's the trainer that has a vision because they care about you. They have a vision for what a healthy lifestyle looks like. So they're pushing you, teaching you to discipline your body for the sake of your future. It's like a parent who has a dream for their child to, to be as successful as they can be and to fulfill their dreams and to fulfill God's dream for them. And so they discipline them. It's not blind justice. It's discipline out of love for the sake of their future. Do you see how these categories are different? Are you tracking with me? Punishment is in view of the past. It's blind to the relationship and blind to the future. Discipline is completely in view of the future and it happens out of relationship. So which does God do? He's a God of justice. He holds justice, so he's a God that punishes He's a God that looks at the crime, and, and here's the reality of our lives, is he looks down at our lives and he sees that our lives are deserving of punishment. We've broken his laws. We worship other things other than him, success or pleasure or a relationship or comfort or whatever. We put things before him. We break his laws of, of gossip and cheating and lying and lust and all these things, we do things deserving of punishment. And if we've done a crime against an infinite God, then the punishment is an infinite punishment. So he looks down at us and here's what he sees. Every single one of us, justice is, every last one of us deserve an infinite punishment, eternity away from God in hell. But he's not just a God of justice. He is also at the same time a God of love. And here's his brilliant plan. He sends the Son of God, Jesus, to earth. Jesus, fully God, fully man. He came to suffer. Dies on the cross. Nailed to the cross, suffering unimaginable pain, but also taking all of the punishment and the wrath for our sin on the cross. He dies, rises again from the dead, saying the sentence is fully served. So what does that mean? All of our sins, my sins, your sins, the punishment that we deserve, fully exhausted on Jesus for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And anyone who puts their faith in Jesus is thoroughly forgiven of all of their sin. All of the punishment... All of the punishment has been exhausted on Jesus. So that means he is only dealing with us in view of his love for us 
and in view of our future. That means all that's left, there's no punishment left for you if you are in Jesus. Now he's just looking at us saying, all right, what am I going to do with this? What masterpiece am I going to craft with this? He says, oh, you know what? I think if I could just sand down this rough edge here and, and if I could just clean up this right here and I'm going I'm to cut this part off, I could fit it in. I'm going to make this into a masterpiece. That's how he handles you. But let me ask you a question. All of the things that happened to this wood to reclaim it, the sanding, the cutting, the nailing, that hurts this wood, doesn't it? Here's what God promises. James chapter 1, verse 2. Let me just read it to you because sometimes I think we're surprised when something uncomfortable happens as if it's like something, something's gone wrong. But here's what God promises. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God says, I hope you're expecting discomfort because I promise that's coming. And I think sometimes we're shocked. Like I think in our culture we're a little, we're soft. We're soft. And all of a sudden something uncomfortable happens like, okay, something has gone terribly wrong. We're soft. Okay, let me put it like this. Pretty much all of us know how to live a healthy lifestyle. I mean, we know. Okay, we know what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to eat, and how you're supposed to exercise. We basically know. Okay, like, you know, eat a little more kale, Eat fewer donuts, okay? It's not rocket science, okay? Go for a jog every now and then, all right? It's, it's pretty simple. But the health industry is booming with us finding the least uncomfortable way to do that. Look, we have a chocolate shake, but it helps you get in shape. Oh, I can have a chocolate shake and get in shape? Oh, that's what I want to do. There's this new exercise machine that's been out the last couple years, and they promise that you strap yourself into this thing and it works you out for four minutes, only four minutes, and it gives you the equivalent of like a 45-minute full-body aerobic workout. Now, what has to happen? I want to know. What has to happen to your body for those four minutes? I mean, are you just screaming in agony the whole time, okay? Like, that sounds like torture, all right? So we know what to do. We're just a little soft. And God's saying, okay, I'm preparing you ahead of time. It's going to be uncomfortable. But first of all, you got to know, it's not in view of your past. A Christian, you can never say, this is happening to me because God is punishing me because I did that. He's saying, no, I'm bringing you through this. It is uncomfortable, but it's because I'm crafting you into a masterpiece. I have a vision for your life. In fact, I'm answering some of your prayers by bringing this discomfort on you. Remember that prayer where you said, man, I wish I had healthier relationships. Well, I'm sanding off your rough edges. You're like, man, God, I wish I had greater faith. I wish I believed in you. He's like, well, I'm giving you a situation that's stretching your faith. You say, God, I, I wish I was a little bit more patient, or I wish I had more, more humility, or I wish I had this, or I wish I, I could fix this part of my relationship in my marriage. Well, God's like, okay, here's what it looks like to fix your marriage. There's some things I'm going to put you under the chop saw that they need to be removed from your life. 
Saying, don't be surprised at discomfort. Expect it. If there's one thing you could walk out of here today thinking, it would be this. Put this remember this, this idea. The safest place to be is in God's hands. You say, well, I know that. I know you know it, but we forget it the moment things get uncomfortable. And what we do is we're in his hand and things get uncomfortable or a little too restrictive and we try to wiggle our hands out of his hands. And he's saying, look, the safest place to be. This is Elimelech and Naomi's story. They should have stayed in the context where they were, even though it was uncomfortable. They tried to go around what God was, talk, was calling them to do, and it caused great pain in their life. The safest place to be is directly in his hands. That thing he's calling you to, I know it seems risky, but it's actually safer to be obedient because you're in his hands. I know that thing that seems he's asking you, you're like, wow, that's restrictive. It's actually more freeing because you're in his hands. The safest place to be is right in his hands, even when it's uncomfortable. Let me give you three practical things quickly to remember that. Here's the first one. So what do you do to remember that? Redeem discomfort. When you're facing discomfort in your life, don't be shocked like something crazy is happening. Don't look at your life and say, man, I, why is this happening? This is bizarre. Don't be shocked. Redeem it. Start to say, start to anticipate. I know it's when he says, count it all joy. I know you're not going to click your heels together and high five someone when you're going through a hard time. And it's okay to acknowledge to those that you love that you're going through a hard time. But deep down, find the joy of anticipating, but I know somehow you're making me into a masterpiece. Christian, there are times that you take a big step of faith and obedience and then things get worse. And you're like, God, I, this is, I thought the opposite happens. You say, okay, I, I reached out to that family member to reconcile and I thought that's what you wanted me to do and, and, and now it's even worse. God, I, I took that step of faith in my career, and now I'm, I'm in worse shape now. Or I, 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 you know, maybe it has to do with your church. You say, look, I, I feel like I don't have a lot of time, but I, I made that commitment. I got on a serving team or got into a community group, and now all of a sudden, now I have less time. What am I supposed to do? Or, or how about this one? My, my church just went through and launched a financial initiative, hypothetically. <laughs> and I felt, I really, in that step of faith, I, I stretched myself financially and I thought that the Bible says just money starts piling on top of me at that point. I thought I was going to walk down the street and people are throwing cash in my way as I'm just walking down the street. And I took that step of faith and I'm stretching myself financially and somehow now things are harder financially. Christian, press on. Keep going. Redeem what's happening when it comes to discomfort. He's like, everything's under control. I'm just busy making a masterpiece out of you. Redeem discomfort. Here's the second one. Remodel coping. There are some seasons that God's like, okay, you just need to survive this. Lay on the operating table and let me go to work on you. Just lay there. And in that season, monitor your coping mechanisms. 
Because a lot of time the way we cope is we try to escape the pain or numb the pain and that can get us into real trouble. When what he's saying is just approach me, square up to it, be honest with the Christian community around you, be honest in your prayers to me, be honest with where you're at and just walk through it, process through it. Don't avoid it. Remodel your coping. Here's the last one. Repurpose your prayers. I found recently in my life, I went through a season where I was saying to God, God, I feel like a lot of my prayers here lately and just my personal prayers, I feel like you've just been saying no a lot. I'm starting to get like frustrated, Lord. And he kind of pushed back on me and he said, okay, I want you to go back through your prayers and I want you to see how many of your prayers truly underneath it, you were just asking me to help you avoid discomfort. And I traced back to my prayers and especially a lot of the ones that he had said no to. Where I said, God, please don't let this happen and then it happened. God, I don't want this to happen and then it happened and it was worse. Or Lord, please, can, can you just... Can you show up and do this? And then he didn't. And I remember saying, God, like, what in the world are you doing? And he said, okay, just go back through that. Was really what was motivating that just avoiding discomfort? And was your expectation that I'm always going to help you avoid discomfort? Because I literally promised the opposite. I promised you would go through discomfort because I'm building you into something beautiful and powerful. I, I didn't answer this prayer because I'm busy answering this other prayer you asked me for. And so he says, yes, bring me those prayers. Bring me all of your prayers. There's no prayer you can't bring to God. But when he says no, and he allows us to go through that discomfort, it's not suddenly that maybe there's not a God. It's God's doing exactly what he told us he would do. And we can push forward because the safest place that you can possibly be is in his hands. He's the house of bread. Don't go looking for bread anywhere else. You say, well, it's, that's easy for God to say. He's all safe, up, safe and sound up there in the glories of heaven while we suffer down here. That's easy for God to say, right? No, it's not. Because the type of God that we serve is a God that looked down at us and said, I'm not going to leave them where they're at. And he came down to earth, Jesus Christ, he suffered the unimaginable pain physically of crucifixion, but he suffered taking all of our sin on himself, being, taking all the wrath that we deserved. Christian, he loves you so much. You and I, like Naomi, have turned our backs on God and bittered towards God or, or, or rejecting God. And he says, no, I still love you. I'm still coming after you. You want to see how much I love you? Look to the cross and the blood dripping down, the pain from the cross. My suffering shows how much I love you, that I saved you with my suffering. And more than that, Christian, do you realize his suffering redeems your suffering? Because his suffering means that your suffering is not punishment. Your suffering's not empty. Your suffering's not about your past. Your suffering's not just something you have to survive because of something you did. You, it's all of the, his suffering redeems you from that so that your suffering is something that we can anticipate the power and beauty of what he's making us into being. His suffering has given our suffering meaning and purpose and hope. That's who we serve. 
a God who looks at us and reclaims and redeems us. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.